So if folks want to start making their way back, we'll get started in a in a couple minutes. so much.
Okay. So welcome back. Romy gave uh, such a a warm introduction, an invitation for me to tell you about um, this uh, this program that I, I thought I would do that now before I forget. So um, Next Step Dharma is a six-week online program that I run that Spirit Rock sponsors uh, that's designed, uh, there are two purposes. So one is if you sit a meditation retreat, it's designed to help you transition from the retreat back into your daily life and to integrate whatever you learned and the experiences you had and the teachings that you received on the retreat into your day-to-day. And then the other purpose is even if you haven't sat a retreat, it's a great program to get to learn how to apply the Dharma in your daily life and how to um, deepen your meditation practice in the course of your ordinary responsibilities and activities. And so um, there are interviews with Joseph and Jack and Joanna Macy and Sharon Salzberg and other teachers. Um, Myself and some of my colleagues do a live Q&A call every week and a half during the program so you have contact with the teacher and we can correspond through the course. So there's a lot of great offerings there. So if you're interested, just pick up one of these flyers out there. Or if you're watching, you can just go to nextstepdharma.org. So I wanted to talk tonight about an aspect of this path that that doesn't get as much press as mindfulness. So uh, we hear a lot about mindfulness, um, not just in the uh, kind of public world, but uh, also in the Buddhist world, on retreats and evening talks and groups, we give a lot of emphasis to mindfulness. And for good reason, uh, if we're not mindful, if we're not actually aware of what's happening, none of the, none, none, nothing else is possible. None of the rest of the path is possible because then we're just on automatic, operating on our habits. So mindfulness means knowing what's happening directly, in the moment. It's an open, receptive, and intimate awareness with experience. And it's something that we can strengthen. It's a capacity that we all have innately that can also be cultivated. But one can be mindful, one can be aware of what's happening and still be caught, still be reactive, we can, we can be aware of something and still be overwhelmed or still feel tossed around by life. So the question is, is mindfulness enough? Is it enough to just be aware if we can still get caught and tumbled around? We can know that we're getting, you know, pummeled, <laughs> but still really be out of balance. Or we can be mindful of the intense suffering in the world, whether it's gun violence or the opioid crisis or income inequality or war or the, you know, huge portions of the planet that don't have access to clean water or medicine. So we can be mindful of that, we can be aware of it, um, 
but still feel overwhelmed or lost in rage or despair or numb, you know, just, just shut off emotionally. So what, what good does that do? So mindfulness isn't actually enough to find a really enduring peace in the heart or to realize our potential as individuals or as a society. The question is, when we become mindful, what are we learning? What are we learning from that process? Is the heart maturing? Are we letting go? So mindfulness is one step in a larger process. It helps us to know what's happening, which gets us in the terrain, and to stay with it to stay aware, to stay engaged. But we can't just stop there. We actually have to look at how we're relating to what's happening. So we could say that there are always two things in our experience. There's what's happening, and there's how we're relating to it. So right now, you know, you're sitting here, or you're sitting at home watching, listening, so there's the images and the sound and the meaning. There's what's happening. And then there's how you're relating. Oh, this is interesting. Or I've heard this before, you know, or thinking about something else. I don't really care about this. There's what's happening and how we're relating. You go home and your roommate or girlfriend or boyfriend or partner says something to you. You hear it. There's some meaning there. And then there's how you're relating to it. You feel delighted you feel annoyed, right? So there's always these two layers to our experience. So mindfulness starts to help us be aware of that. The other factor that we need that's central on this path is something called equanimity. And this is the capacity of our mind to be balanced, to be non-reactive, so this, this factor of equanimity is one of the most important qualities on the Buddhist path. And it's one of the most misunderstood and least talked about. So mindfulness and equanimity work together. They go hand in hand. It's about knowing what's happening and staying balanced, not losing perspective. So tonight I want to talk about equanimity, what it is, um, how we can cultivate it, and how it applies to our lives, and particularly to the difficult things that we're facing today. So equanimity is a kind of balance that comes from wisdom, that comes from understanding things. It helps us to see and feel the whole range of human experience, the joy and the sorrow, the ups and the downs of life, and stay even-minded. And when we're balanced and even like that, equanimity gives us the capacity to respond to what's happening with clarity rather than reactively or compulsively. So, the theme of balance itself runs throughout the whole teachings of the Buddha. He characterized the whole path as the middle way, the middle way between the extremes of indulgence and avoidance. 
uh, in meditation practice. Anyone here who's um, done some meditation practice knows that you're always balancing. You're balancing energy and alertness with calm and tranquility. You have too much calm, you get sleepy. You have too much energy, you get restless. Um, We're balancing wisdom with compassion. That, That clarity of seeing with this capacity of the heart to feel and care. If you only have one without the other, it gets lopsided. Too much wisdom, not enough compassion, it gets cold and, and kind of just intellectual and disconnected. Too much compassion without enough wisdom, we burn out. We get overwhelmed because compassion needs to be balanced with equanimity and understanding. Same thing in life. If you only look at the bright side of things, you only look at the good in life, we're disconnected from what's actually happening and we don't, we don't respond to things appropriately. We don't act. And if we only look at the difficult things, we get cynical or we become paralyzed. So balance is essential in meditation practice and in life. So balance that's born of wisdom. So what equanimity isn't, equanimity doesn't mean numbing out doesn't mean not feeling anything. It means not being shaken or overwhelmed by what we feel. So equanimity gives us the space to feel what's happening without getting spun out. The good, the bad, the pleasant, the unpleasant. We can feel all of it without drowning or without getting lost in our reactions. So you get a diagnosis and be some feelings there. A relative gets a diagnosis and be some feelings there. How do we respond? There's what's happening and how we're relating to it. Do we have the space inside to process what we're experiencing? To allow ourselves to feel it fully without getting bent out of shape, without feeling broken, or in despair or panicked to stay clear and grounded. Equanimity doesn't mean being calm all the time, (laughs) just totally neutral and no affect. It means staying, staying centered in the midst of whatever's happening. There's this, um, there's this word in Pali, which is the language that the early Buddhist texts are written down in, called tatramajatata, which means, it's an interesting one, it means something like um, standing in the middle of everything, or uh, right there in the middle. So it's that sense of like, like the eye of the storm. I was, uh, I was talking with a colleague of mine. We just finished teaching a retreat down in Santa Cruz, and she had just come from teaching a retreat with George Mumford, who, um, who's a mindfulness teacher and uh, coached the L.A. Lakers. And uh, Apparently, he was telling, telling this colleague of mine a story about working with um, one, of the, one of the great basketball players. I can't remember if it was Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan, but... 
apparently he had this amazing quality of equanimity. Everything could be chaos around around him, whether it was on the on the court or just in the um, you know in meetings or in the in the locker room. And there was this stillness, just always being right there in the middle with what's happening. One of the most common misunderstandings of equanimity is that it means indifference or apathy. So in the texts, this is what's called the, the near miss. It's like it, it, look, it can look like equanimity, but it's actually a completely different state of mind. Indifference. That's... Uh, it's called stupid equanimity. <laughs> the equanimity of not knowing. Because it's a defense. Indifference means that we don't want to feel something. It's a, it's a shutting off. This is from um, uh, an English monk named Ajahn Suchito. He writes, Apathy has a dulling quality to it. An ignorance, a shrug. There's no shrug in equanimity. It has clarity, sensitivity, and stability. A wise space. The last thing, just to differentiate about this quality of equanimity, is it doesn't mean not acting. It doesn't mean not taking action. It doesn't mean not speaking up. It doesn't mean being passive being a doormat or not caring about anything. It means not reacting. So not acting unconsciously out of habit or compulsion. So it gives us the space to actually choose how we want to respond because of the balance that's present, because of the space it creates to be with what's happening. So the metaphor, the operative metaphor for equanimity is not distance. It's not like this cold, unfeeling distance, but like Ajahn Sachito was saying, it's space. So it gives us perspective and space. When this quality is really strong, it's like you have a really wide space to live in. If you ever lived in a small space or if now you live in a small space, you know what it's like to come to a big open, you know, place like Spirit Rock, you know, and there's, you can see the sky and the hills or even in this room, it's so spacious, right? There's, this, there's one of the analogies that's told in the texts is um, if uh, something difficult happens, uh, it's, uh, and you haven't practiced. It's like taking salt, a teaspoon of salt, and putting it in a cup of water. So if someone were to come and put a teaspoon of salt in this glass of water, it would not taste very good, right? It tastes salty. But if you took that same teaspoon of salt and you brought it to a great big lake and you put it in the lake, no effect, right? Same teaspoon of salt, but the space it's entering into is that much bigger. So that's what equanimity does for the heart. It gives us a really wide space so that when things happen, 
There's space to hold it all. So this quality of equanimity is something that we can practice. It's also talked about in the texts. Um, it shows up actually in uh, several different places. For those who have studied some of the some Buddhism or are interested, uh, it's one of the four divine abidings, one of the four um, qualities, uh, profound qualities or mature emotions of the heart, together with loving kindness, compassion, joy, and then the fourth is equanimity. And uh, this, these four mature emotions or um, profound states of mind is the, the topic of that f- the three-day retreat I'm teaching here in a couple weeks that, that Romy mentioned uh, later in March. So it's one of these profound emotions. Uh, it's one of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the ten paramis or the ten perfections, these qualities of the heart that we can uh, develop to a, a very high level in life. And it's also considered to be one of the highest results of Buddhist practice, or what the, the way it's talked about is fruit. You know, so like a tree that's growing and then fruit. So the, the, the na- nature imagery in Buddhism is used because the understanding is that this process of meditation is a natural one. So if you plant an apple seed and it grows into a tree, you're going to get apples. You're not going to get oranges or lemons, right? It's a natural process. So if you practice this path and you take it uh, far enough, the fruit, one of the fruits, one of the highest fruits is equanimity, this state of balance. The... uh, one of, the, one of the lines in one text that talks about this fruit, it says, a heart, when touched by the changes in life, remains unshaken, without sorrow, stainless and secure. Unshaken, without sorrow, stainless and secure. So this is a pretty profound kind of uh, experience we can have. So maybe you hear all this and you go, mindfulness, gosh, I've been, you know, I've been focusing on the wrong thing. I want some of that equanimity. (laughs) So what's cool about equanimity is it's not a state. It's not a thing. It's not something that you get. It's, It's balance. It's a, it's a poise. It's something that we learn. It's a, it's a dynamic equilibrium that, that has wisdom within it that allows us to feel our experience without becoming lost in it or being identified with it. It, allows, it gives us the space for things to move through us and then determine what's, well, what do I do here? What makes sense? So if I ask you, you know, do you know how to do you know how to stand and balance? And you said, "Yeah, I can stand up and balance." So, okay, well, well, show me your balance. Can you g- give me your balance? I want to see it. Where is your balance? It's like, well, it's not like that. It's not a thing. 
I just, I balance, I just do it, right? So equanimity is something that we live. It's a lived understanding how it is to be with things in this spacious, non-reactive way. And when we practice with it over time, we find that we're less and less reactive. We have more balance, more space. And in the areas that we still get caught and get reactive, we can bring awareness to that very reactivity and recover in less time. So this is the direction that the path goes. So how do we develop equanimity? How do we actually grow in this capacity? When you think about how we usually respond when something happens that we don't like, or even when you know things happen that we do like, we get you know sometimes we we get really uh, ungrounded when good things happen. We can lose our center with pleasant things. When one considers that, uh, you realize it takes some work to have that you know that big lake with a teaspoon of salt. So equanimity grows slowly over time with patience. It grows slowly over time with reflection and insight. And it grows through embodied practice, through feeling what's happening. If you want to develop equanimity, you need to develop a radical willingness to feel. And if there's one thing I think that we as a species need more of, is this, this kind of willingness to feel in service of learning how to stay balanced. Probably one of the most um, pervasive challenges that I think we face today is helplessness. Helplessness. I, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. I'm powerless. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So how do we relate to that helplessness? What do we do? Do we just shut off? Do we avoid it? Right? Can we stay with it? Can we stay with that feeling and learn from it? And part of the problem is that there, there are no individual solutions to the problems that we're facing. You know, You can solve a problem in your own life maybe with yourself or one or two people, but when it gets large enough, the kind of systems that we live within, it's not, you know, it takes more than what one person can do. So I don't know the answer. I was thinking about, you know, coming here tonight and uh, wishing I knew more. Seriously. Wishing I could share uh, some brilliant wisdom about how we're going to get out of the problems we're facing. Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> but I do know something. I know that, the, that, in, that we just need to walk in the right direction. We need to start walking in the right direction. And that direction is about cultivating these qualities in our hearts and minds. The awareness of what's happening, the willingness to feel so that we can develop more balance. And that's going to give us the capacity to make clearer choices. So how do we develop equanimity? 
Well, the first thing is to start where you are. So start where you are. Notice our reactivity. So we don't have equanimity. We have to actually start there. In order to, v- to develop equanimity, we need to study it when we lose equanimity. So we have preferences. We do get attached. You know, we do get reactive. So we find balance by being out of balance, right? If you ever walked on a balance beam or tried to do a slack line or something like that, you know that like you have to you have to be willing to be out of balance in order to find your balance. There's actually no such thing as balance, right? It's just a continual process of readjusting, readjusting. In Zen practice, they talk about making one continuous mistake. <laughs> Life just being one continuous mistake. But, but the practice is how quickly we recover, how we respond to that. So if we want to have equanimity in difficult times in our own life or in our society and community, we need to practice with the smaller stuff, right? You need to be willing to practice when you, when you put milk in your coffee and then you taste it and you realize it's gone sour, right? Or you get a parking ticket, you know? What are the things that get you going that really don't matter? You know, I don't know what it is for you, but... To, to look at that and be willing to use that as practice to find balance, to be willing to feel. So start small. Notice your response when things change, when they don't go the way we want, when they don't work out. And be willing to get the feedback to see, okay, when, when life doesn't behave the way I would like it to, when reality doesn't cooperate with my wishes, am I willing to feel this? To be with the contraction, independent of what's happening. Can I notice my reaction and then remember the possibility of equanimity? To know that equanimity is this space, this balance. We don't have to try to create it. We just have to stay aware. To stay aware of that process, feel the reactivity. So we start where we are and notice our reactivity. The next step is learning how to step back. So to shift our attention. So remember I said there are these two things. There's what's happening and there's how we're relating. So we tend to stay focused on what's happening. So something happens. Um, somebody at work goes, goes around around you circumvents you in a conversation and makes a decision that you would have liked to have been included in. And you feel really angry. So we tend to identify with the emotion, take it personally, I'm angry, they shouldn't have done that, and then we stay focused on the event, on the thing that happened, or the other person, what they said, what they did, or what they didn't do, and we keep replaying that. Right? I mean, is this just me? Okay, okay, good. I'm just checking. So we stay focused on what's happening. 
in order to develop equanimity, we need to be able to take a step back and look at how we're relating to it. To become aware of the reaction itself. So to temporarily let go of the situation, the person, our ideas about what should have happened, and try to get some perspective. So to become conscious of our reaction itself. Oh, I'm feeling really angry. This is anger. This is what it feels like to not want what's happening and feel angry. So there are many different ways to step back from experience. This is a, uh, the, the term in Pali is viveka. It's this um, ability to not be uh, totally enmeshed in an experience. So the simple tool of mental noting that we use in sitting, you know, where you note thinking, thinking, or hearing, is a good tool to start to step back, to just note what you're experiencing. You can play with um, the scope of your awareness. So you know how you can be aware of uh, something very fine, like if I hold up this pen, you, you all visually can focus on the pen. It's a pretty small object. But then if I say, be aware of the whole space in this room, you can be aware of something much larger. So our awareness is like a flashlight, an adjustable lens. It can open or narrow. So stepping back, sometimes you open your awareness. Notice sounds, notice space, feel your hands, feel your feet or your whole body instead of just the thing that we're fixated on, widen our awareness. We generally don't want to do this. All of our habit, all of our conditioning is to stay locked in the reaction, to keep spinning or to avoid feeling it, to resist feeling it. So, so this, this step, this step of stepping back, this process of stepping back, uh, takes some practice to get a, a, a feel for how to unhook and kind of lift up off the topic. And it can, it can take a lot of humility to just be honest and recognize like, okay, I'm, re- I'm reacting. Like I'm really getting reactive here. Positive, negative, uh, angry, despair, blaming myself, um, frustrated, whatever it is without adding anything to it or trying to change it or make it go away, to just step back and see that experience as it is. So part of what helps us do this, part of what helps us to step back, and a key part of developing equanimity is wisdom. And in the Buddhist tradition, um, wisdom is not intellectual. It's not about having lots of information. It's very down-to-earth. It means knowing which way the wind blows. It means having a, 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 a very earthy common sense about us. So wisdom is one of the causes of equanimity, being able to understand things clearly. And, and this wisdom, which I'll speak more about in a moment, also helps us to step back, to start to give us perspective. So which way does the wind blow? So in the Buddhist tradition, there's this teaching 
called the Eight Worldly Winds. And there are these forces of change that blow through our lives, every one of us, every one of us in this room, every person that's ever walked the planet experiences pleasure and pain. We experience gain and loss. We get things, we lose them. We experience praise and blame. The Buddha said, they blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak a lot. They blame those who speak in moderation. There is no one in the world who is free from blame. Think about that next time somebody has something to say about the way you did something. So pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and shame. We're in the spotlight and then we're, you know, on the sidelines. And so life is just this alternating rhythm. These things, they just come and go, come and go, and the world revolves around them. So we can reflect on this and start to understand, okay, this is just the nature of things. They come and they go. How, you know, how high do we get when we experience the gain and the praise and the pleasure and the fame? Or do we, do we reflect? Do we understand? Okay, it's like this today. It's probably going to change tomorrow. Here it comes and then it's going to go. When we hit the low end, you know, when we experience the pain or the loss or the blame or the shame, the disrepute. How much does it drive us down into the ground? Or can we just recognize like, oh, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. So the, the core understanding at the heart of the Buddhist teachings, the understanding that an enlightened being has that an ordinary person doesn't have, everything that arises passes away. Everything that comes into being dissolves. We all know this, right? But we know it here. We don't know it here really deeply. When I was a kid, there was a park near my house. That's pretty fortunate, right? Not all kids have a park near their house. Uh, just a few blocks away. And uh, there was one of those, uh, what do you call them? Mer- merry-go-round? What's it called? Mer- merry-go-round, yeah. You know, you spin on it. I, I couldn't stand it. You get really dizzy. and um... So when we don't have this understanding... It's like we get spun around by the worldly winds, by the changes in life, the things that come and go. They spin us around. What I did like, I did like the swings. I like that, you know, you go up and then you go down. And then you go up and then you go down. And it just changes. And you can just flow with that, right? Because you know, you know when you go up, you're not going to stay there. It's going to come back down. I also like the seesaws. Those are really fun. Again, they go up and you go down. Go up and you go down. That's the way it goes. It changes. Now, 
sometimes one of the other kids would get crafty. And when I was up in the air, it would jump off. Ever have that happen? Boom, right? You land really hard. So. But I wouldn't be surprised, right? You see the kid get off, you know, you, you brace yourself, you get your legs out, you know that you're going to, it's going to come down hard, right? So, when we're on the upswing, and then it changes, are we shocked? Are we so surprised that the seesaw crashed down? Right? Have we actually understood everything that arises passes away? It's going to change. Now I'm up, now I'm down. So this is the nature of things, our heartbeat in and out, the breath coming and going, night and day. Life is just a series of ups and downs. Change and loss are inevitable. So we can, we can reflect and try to understand Okay, can I see this as it is? It's just a changing condition. It's not going to stay this way. Nothing's going to stay this way. They're all just changing conditions. Or do we get obsessed? Do we get, you know, repelled and attracted and entangled, spun around by what's happening? So it's a, it's a kind of delusion to think that we can only have one side of the experience that we can ride the swing and only stay up it's like it's like only wanting to experience pleasure and gain and praise and fame and not experience the other side of things is like only wanting to breathe in seriously <laughs> how crazy is that it's not possible if you breathe in you will breathe out even if you die, you will still breathe out. <laughs> it's just the way it works. If you get something, you're going to lose it. All of us. So this is the kind of wisdom that leads to equanimity, that starts to give us the space to experience the changes of life. And we start to understand just these fundamental truths. That being alive is vulnerable, inherently that we all suffer, we all feel pain. And we don't have, well, if we don't have equanimity, if we haven't practiced, when things don't go the way we want, the mind starts to wobble, it spins, it gets flooded. And we can also reflect on the fact that a lot of our life is not in our control. The idea we have of being the center of the universe and this, you know, the world kind of being designed to fit our preferences is, is a fiction. We're part of a much, much larger whole. And everything that happens is connected to a whole web of changing conditions. And the reality is that we don't control that web. We don't control the context much of the time. We control how we respond. We control the choices we make if we're aware. But so much is out of our hands. So when things don't go the way we like, it shouldn't be that surprising. 
there's this infinite web of factors that are totally out of our control. A lot of our practice, a lot of contemplative practice is learning what we have jurisdiction over and disabusing ourselves of the myths of what we think we can actually control, recognizing the limits of our control. So there's a story of um, a very wealthy king who um, apparently this was before they had shoes or sandals in the story. He's walking in his kingdom and he stepped on um, uh, a thorn that went into his foot and uh, became very irate and ordered uh, the whole retinue of the kingdom to come together and uh, said, I want my whole kingdom covered in, uh, in uh, animal skins so that wherever I walk, I don't need to step on any more thorns and hurt my, you know, my feet. And so all of the, you know, people in the court got together. It's going to be impossible. We have to slaughter all the animals. It's too big. It's not going to work. And how do we do this? And so finally one person says, I have an idea. I think it might work. And went to the king. You know what's coming, right? Went to the king and said, your majesty, we've devised a solution. We can take the leather and put it around your feet. And then you can walk wherever you want, even outside the kingdom, and your feet will be safe. So what do we do? How do we, how do we, how do we live? How much of the time do we spend trying to arrange things to be the way we like them? Trying to control everything around us and cover the world with leather. Instead of dealing with the problem at the source So equanimity is like having that space around the heart when things happen. So starting where we are, noticing our reactivity, learning to step back to get some some space, starting to develop wisdom to reflect on the way things change and that so much is out of our control. And then the last part to developing equanimity is we stepped back, we get some perspective, have some wisdom, then it's actually coming closer. It's actually coming back into the experience and really feeling it fully. So I was saying before that we learn to have balance by being out of balance. Equanimity develops by being with reactivity. It's by staying, having awareness right there at the edge of our reactivity that equanimity starts to grow. So when we're caught in some emotion or some reaction, we have to be willing to feel it. So the, one of the analogies in the commentaries in the texts is like equanimity is like the shore around a lake. It's that boundary around the edge that can contain what's happening, but still be in contact with it, still feel it. So this is where a lot of the deeper transformation and healing starts to happen in meditation practice, where we actually start working with the powerful impulses and emotions and energies in our heart. 
we start to get in touch with them and we realize that they're not set in stone. They're, they're just patterns. They're just these kind of eddies, like whirlpools in our mind and heart that have been spinning for a long time, but they're transient. They're changeable. And by bringing awareness and balance to feeling them, they start to shift and change. They start to actually open up. So this is a, this ability to actually be with and feel what's happening without any shame or fear or resistance or pushing away to just be able to go, oh, okay, let me feel this. This too. This is okay. I can be with this. And just at the edge, not in the middle, not where it's the strongest, not where we're, where we're you know, getting crushed by something. We have to step back to widen, to move outside of it first and get that perspective and then slowly start to come back in with our awareness. Remember that, that, uh, that uh, aperture, starting to actually come back in and just feel it around the edges. Okay, can I just be with this? That radical willingness to feel. When we can do this, nothing in the content of our experience changes. So that example of something happening at work, like nothing in the content changes, but the process of how we are with it starts to change. So the reactivity inside starts to, starts to go down. We can allow a feeling or an emotion to, uh, to come up, to enter us, to feel it fully, and then to let it pass. And our heart doesn't need to get bent out of shape uh, or cramped uh, or resist it. It's big enough. Our heart starts to be big enough to include and embrace all of our experience. And then we come back to the situation. We return to what's actually happening and say, okay, what's needed? What's the response? After we've taken some time to, to, to feel and digest and be with the reaction, to, to let it move through. So one of the critiques that's most often levied against Buddhist practice is that it makes people more passive. It's just kind of, it's just about accepting everything and that people kind of become uh, accepting of the status quo, which might be quite oppressive and dangerous. I think this is a misunderstanding of the teachings, actually, and a misapplication of them. So seeing the way things are, really understanding that everything arises, passes away, understanding what we have control over and what we don't have control over. It doesn't mean that we don't act. 
it makes our action more sustainable and more effective because we're coming from a place of clarity rather than fear or anger or confusion or compulsion. I think that we're, we're wired to feel things. It's not just me. I mean, this is sort of neuroscience is showing that we are innately empathic as human beings. And we, we have this deep longing to feel connected, to belong, to love and to be loved. We're so sensitive, these bodies and these hearts, to, to feel things. And we need equanimity to live in this world and keep our heart open. Without it, it's not possible. There's too much pain. We either go numb or we feel broken or despair or rage or we just, we just shut down. So equanimity allows us to start to see things with more balance, to treat others equally and to keep from getting caught in our narrow-mindedness, our preferences, our reactivity. And the, the resilience that it brings lets us include the, the vast challenges that we're facing today. This is a quote from Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk and contemplative. <clears throat> Let's see if you can hear the equanimity in what he's saying. Don't depend on the hope of results. You might have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, on the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. There's this deep understanding of the limits of control, that there's this vast net of conditions. Dr. King called the uh, interrelated structure of reality. That's outside of our control. But that doesn't mean we don't act. It just means we recognize that much of the time the results are out of our hands. So it takes a lot of courage, I think, a lot of strength and a lot of equanimity to to be awake today, to actually face the realities that we're living through to turn towards the disturbing truths of our time and actually ask meaningful questions. You know, how am I with this? This radical willingness to feel, if I'm numb, okay, start there. How does it feel to be numb? Can I let that in? If I'm overwhelmed, step back, get some space to process that so that we can start to discern 
What's my role? You know, what's my bit that I can do? What's a wise response for me? So mindfulness needs to be paired with equanimity. It's not enough just to be aware. We have to develop this capacity, this space to be with what's happening in a balanced way. And the result of this kind of practice is a heart that's clear, spacious, wise, and compassionate. It can take action in the face of danger or suffering. So may we each have the courage and strength to be willing to feel what's happening and develop this quality of equanimity. So thank you so much for listening so patiently and attentively. Uh, We have some time now. If there are uh, questions that you'd like to ask about this, uh, let's start with this topic. And then if we run out of questions on this topic, uh, we can move to more general questions related to um, the teachings and the practice. And if folks are starting to trickle out, I'll just mention um, if... uh, If you enjoy the way um, I share these teachings, I would love to stay in touch with you. And the best way to do that is to sign up for my email list, which is out there on the table. I send out about one email a month with a link to an article I've written or a Dharma talk that I gave um, or a a guided meditation, things like that. So feel free to uh, write your email address down on your way out. Hi, thank you. I've been really curious recently about spiritual bypassing and mm-hmm. how to know when, how to sort of self-police when yeah. you're trying. Because I know that I, I know that I came to this practice in large part because I'm trying to avoid all the things that are uncomfortable. So mm. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to um, the, like maybe an example of being in something that's difficult and that stepping back motion. Sure. That isn't trying to bypass. Right, right. Thank you. Um, so the question is about spiritual bypassing, you know, and the astute observation that you recognize that part of the motivation in coming to spiritual practice is to avoid or get away from the difficult things, um, becoming aware of that. Uh, and could I give an example of a stepping back that's not bypassing? So... Um, yeah, a few things. Um, one, uh, any contemplative practice that's worth its salt is going to um, have a radical kind of honesty in it, and so we need to be really willing to to be. We need to be willing to be real with ourselves, and uh, and when we don't know, when we're not sure, to to get input from friends. So um, the Buddha talked about two causes for um, what's called right view, which is a certain uh, wise perspective. And one is our own careful attention, so looking clearly at our own mind and heart. And the other is the perspective from others. So we need to use both reference points. 
the stepping back is a tool in the process. So for some people, and you need to, this is, it's kind of the art, the stepping back and then coming back in and feeling. Some people tend to like just be way back. If that's you, then your move is to actually come in more. Be willing to actually step into things more, try to feel things more. How is this for me? What's happening for me? And actually even say to yourself, okay, let me feel this. I'm willing to feel this. I want to feel this. You know, I want to feel this so that I can understand and, and develop a different relationship with it. If your tendency is to get lost in emotions and reactions and get flooded or overwhelmed by them, then you need to practice stepping back more. And for most of us, it's a mix in different situations or different emotions or different contexts. We have a different response. Um, is that is that enough, or are you wanting an example too? Maybe an example. Um, I got really sick about five five years ago, four or five years ago. Really sick. I was sick for like a year or two, and. Um, I did not want to be sick. I did not enjoy being sick. Um, And I could see, I had done a lot of practice, so where I would get caught is I would either get caught in going back to what the, the, the situation where I got sick and playing it over and over again in my mind and thinking if only I had done this, if I should have done that, right? Trying to like make it so it didn't happen, which isn't possible. Um, or feeling f- fear about the future. What's going to happen and what if and I'm not going to be able to. So the stepping back was sort of like whichever one I was caught in or... Um, or just hating how I was feeling, not wanting to be feeling crappy, excuse my language, Um, just being able to uh, say, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening right now. (sighs) What's happening right now is I don't want this to be happening. That's the truth. Not you should be with this, you're a Buddhist, you, you know, have been practicing for 15 years. No, I don't, want to be, I don't want this to be. That's the truth. I don't want this to be happening. Okay, let me be with that. How is that? You know? Um, well, I can still walk, have enough money, family that cares for me, have health insurance. Okay, all that's so getting perspective. Like, okay, like, could be a lot worse. You know, trying to find some balance, some ground, getting some space from it. And then, and then kind of working the edges to start to feel what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? Um, so I've recently taken up this habit of not reading the news because it, mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it and it kind of just makes me feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds a lot like stupid equanimity as you mm-hmm. described it. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm 
I'm curious how you would approach that. I'm yeah. I'm thinking that you would kind of start with like, you know, not being willfully ignorant and kind of like experiencing things and being informed and then uh, emotionally disengaging to the extent that you can kind of be informed and then after disengaging then learning to like emotionally re-engage with what's going on. What do you think about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think most, many, many of us today are kind of like overstimulated by the news. And I think it's, it can be helpful to limit one's intake or even take a break for a period of time um, with the understanding, and this is really important, with the understanding that it's a privilege to be able to take a break. People living in Syria can't take a break. You know? Um, people struggling to get out of poverty don't get a break from that. So um, there's, some, there's some sense of uh, when we make a choice like that, um, bringing, a, bringing a, a, even to that choice a quality of awareness of the web of conditions that, are, that is allowing us to make that choice. And so that we do it very consciously and use the time well rather than just going into the indifference or the just living in our filter bubble, right? Um, then I think it's for each of us to, to you know, understand, start to understand and find our own way with being in contact with the news. And um, uh, for me, I, I would like, I want to be clear, when I say step back, I'm not, I don't mean emotionally disengaging. It's to, we're still in contact with our emotions. We're just starting to get perspective on them, starting to have, feel space around them rather than being totally lost in them or identified with them. Um, so some of the strategies that I've used or that I've encouraged other people to use is, um, you know, choose a topic that you want to stay aware of and check in with that. Make looking at the news a mindfulness practice. So when you open your news feed, whatever, however you're getting your news, um, you know, look at one or two articles and then put it down, pause, track what's happening, feel what's happening. You know, Ben Harper, I think, has that song about how come the newscasters don't cry when they read the news, you know. And um, I, rem- I don't remember which newscaster, it was someone on CNN with the, yeah, with the Parkland shooting who, you know, broke down, was like, I can't, I can't do it. And it's just this beautiful expression of humanity, you know, to, to, to the willingness to be affected. So I think taking it in small doses and processing it, uh, giving ourselves time to process it, um, possibly choosing different issues or threads to stay connected to that we care about. I think the other important aspect is um, finding a way to engage, finding a way to take action. So figure out, like, what are the issues that you care about? Because there are too many. There are too many to be involved with all of them. You know, it's not possible. But, you know, there are one or two or three that you care about and say, okay, and here's something I can do about that. Whether it's donating or joining an organization or helping to organize or, you know, even just educating yourself more about it. Because I, I think a lot of the helplessness and the overwhelm also comes from not having something to do. 
So the more we have actually a way of engaging around an issue, um, you know, and the Bay Area is probably like one of the most active places to be if you want to engage, um, that can also help to deal with with the, the overwhelm and the flood. Yeah, thanks. There were some hands over here. Do we only have one mic? We have two. Okay, great. I have one over here. Great. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for your very insightful talk. Um, I really appreciate it. In my practice in dealing with equanimity, I find two things are helpful for me, and I was hoping you could expand on them. The first one that I practice with a lot is when something happens that triggers me, I step back and I really honestly ask myself, what is my part in this? Mm -hmm, And I find that that, more often than not, I have a large part in what's happening. And if I can recognize that I played a role in it, it allows me to pause first before I react. Great. And the The, second? The second one is, in my meditation practice, I really make an effort to really focus on letting go of my ego and myself. And that helps me with my equanimity when I realize, as you were talking about, that I'm not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. So that the more that I can do those two things, Mm -hmm. the more in balance I find myself in my daily life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, those those sound useful. Um, Certainly taking responsibility for our, the way we've contributed to something is is always skillful. Um, And contemplating what's my relationship with this. I think one needs to be careful about letting go of ego and self because that can that can start to slip into spiritual bypassing and I would need to talk with you more to understand what you mean by that because there there could be a healthy way of letting letting be like not getting involved with and there can be an unhealthy letting go where we're actually just suppressing or avoiding um for me, I might I think a safer way of thinking about it is try to understand the self. Try to see it clearly rather than let it let it go. Because when we see when we see what the personality and the self are clearly, we don't have to let go. That just that happens automatically. So it's actually about understanding it clearly. Yeah. And and then t- maybe the third thing you w- I would add is just to study the reactivity itself. So when you are holding on, when you are caught, really study that experience because again, you know e- that's where the equanimity starts to grow more is is feeling when we when we don't have it when we are lo- reactive or out of balance, begin to feel what that space feels like and bring whatever degree of equanimity you can to whatever aspect of that experience you can. So then you start at the edges of the reactivity. Yeah. We have time for maybe one more more question. Uh, Yes. uh, I had uh, an experience at the airport uh, a couple days ago when um, I have a a knee joint that has some titanium in it. Anyway, I, this has happened before where I get pulled out to get frisked down. Mm-hmm. And I don't fly that often. But anyway, this happened and uh, the other day, and 
I was forced to uh, submit to this what I conceived of as humiliation mm-hmm. with my arms, my arms outreached, outstretched, mm-hmm. and why somebody is going up and down my body, and, mm-hmm. and I'm feeling uh, very angry about this, but there's nothing that I can do at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and except afterwards, I thought about this when uh, during I gave, gave it some thought, and I realized that I was hating this person that was doing this. Wow! Yeah, uh, extremely. I was just so. I mean, I could see it. Just and realized just, just for the time, I want to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I realized later that, that this was a uh, he was a person just like I am, and that. Uh, this is his job to do this, and this Lovely. is what he's required to do. Nothing to do with him personally. Great. And anyway, that's I Lovely. realized that later. So a little bit of insight on yeah. be more equanimous right. when things are happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Seeing another person's humanity is a wonderful way to develop equanimity. Thank you. So. Thank you so much for for joining and coming tonight. For everyone who's watching at home, thank you for for tuning in. Um, I'd love to see you again and practice together. I'll be back here at Spirit Rock in a couple weeks for the three-day non-residential retreat and then again in April for the communication day long. Um, And as I said, my email list is out there on the table along with my uh, teaching schedule. Feel free to pick one of those up. So let's just sit together quietly for a moment. May the goodness, the insight and understanding of our time together ripple out far and wide, that there be more peace, safety, and freedom on this planet. Thank you for your practice. Okay, have a good night. Get home safely.